I invite you to open up in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 4, sorry, verse 1, get my numbers right, chapter 4, verse 1, verse 1 and 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Today, uh, the title of our message is Holy Walk, Pursuing Greater Obedience. For the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about um, just what it looks like to, to, to live, live a holy life. Uh, to walk in holiness, and we're going to begin with uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 of 1 Thessalonians today. And so I want to first read from God's Word, and, uh, and then we will um, spend some time hopefully learning and growing, being challenged, being encouraged uh, from, from God's Word. So this is the Word of God, beginning in verse 1, chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus... That as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. That is the word of the Lord. Would you just bow one more moment in prayer with me? Father, as we come to this time of the preaching of your word, Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts open up our minds. Lord, we realize that apart from your Holy Spirit, we cannot understand the truths that Scripture contains. Uh, Father, um, we need need you to help us, and so we ask in this moment that you would lead us and guide guide us, guide our thoughts, um, and and yet, Lord, make this not just a time of learning so that where we where we gain knowledge, but Father, we pray that we would learn to um, to grow in wisdom during this time, where we take what is true, the knowledge that we learn, and we apply it to our lives. And so, Father, would you not only mold our minds, but mold our hearts during this time? In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. One of the many things that uh, I'm going to miss this summer is the Olympics. I don't know if you like to watch the Olympics or not. I I, I enjoy it. I enjoy the variety. Uh, of sporting events that that come along with the Olympics, and and some some of the stuff sometimes I've I've never really heard of, and I'll watch it. I didn't know that was a sport, um, or I've heard of this, but I don't even know what they're doing. I don't know the rules. Uh, there's all all sorts of events, but um, one of my favorite things to watch in the Summer Olympics is is the track events. Now I know some of you are thinking, how much more boring can you get watching people run around in circles? Um, and I, I get that, okay? I know that's not the most exciting thing, but I, I do enjoy watching those running events. Um, one, it's just, I'm just amazed at how somebody can run like that. I mean, it's just, it just um, I, I just stand in awe of how somebody's body can run that fast for that long, or if it's a short sprint race, how they can literally almost like they're flying down the track and I get up to those speeds so fast. Another reason I like to watch the, the track events is I used to run track, and so I kind of know a little bit about what's going on and a little bit of the strategy behind some of the some of the things that they do when they're uh, when they're running. Um, but another reason I like the track events is because God's word often uses uh, foot races as analogies for the Christian life. Uh, many times in Scripture we see running races as as an analogy for how we are to live the Christian life. Now, whenever I watch running. Uh, one of the things that I can't stand to see is somebody let up right before the finish line. You know, they're like three or four meters from the finish line, and they're just all out. And then three or four meters before the finish line, they start easing up. 
and you can kind of see them. They kind of let off the gas just a little bit before they cross the finish line. A good runner always runs through the tape, not to the tape, doesn't stop at the finish line, but runs through it so that they're at full speed all the way through. I've seen people lose the race right at the finish line. It wasn't because they, they didn't have the energy. They literally just kind of gave up right there at the end. If they had taken two more steps at that speed, they would have won the race. I've seen runners lose in the last second simply because they stopped short. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. He said, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. In other words, take it seriously. Don't just get out there and just run for the fun of it. Go and try to win. Give it your all, all the way to the end. Today I want us to learn about an important aspect of running the race of a Christian of the Christian life. Here's what I want to, I want I want us to kind of walk away with from this uh, passage today. Your relationship with Jesus should lead you to continually grow in your obedience to Jesus. Your relationship with Jesus should lead you to continually grow in your obedience to Jesus. Uh, today, we're going to leave the first main section of 1 Thessalonians, which is chapters 1 through 3. Um, and uh, in those chapters, Paul spoke in detail about his prior relationship with the Thessalonian believers, both while he was with them, physically when he was with them, and since he has had to leave them. And we've seen Paul's thankfulness regarding their salvation, and hopefully, uh, hopefully we've been challenged in chapters 1 through 3 by Paul's devotion to minister the gospel to them and make disciples of them. Paul is encouraged by the faithfulness of the Thessalonian believers, but we've already seen that he's not satisfied with where they're at right now. If you look back, just look back at chapter 3, verse 10 for a moment. Remember, he said that they're still lacking in their faith. Now, he doesn't mean that they don't have all the faith that they need to be saved yet. That's not what he means. He means that the faith that they have, which has led to salvation, it's still working itself out in their day-to-day life. Their lives still have a long way to go in matching up to who they are in their standing before the Lord. So now then, in chapter 4, we begin this section of 1 Thessalonians where he teaches and he instructs them. He's not just recounting history to them. He's teaching and instructing them how they are to live. In chapter, uh, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, Paul instructs them concerning their behavior. And then in chapter 5, um, he, or excuse me, 4, 13, he begins to instruct them about some wrong thinking that they have. And then later on in chapter 5, he goes back to the behavior. So he, he gives them instruction about how they're to act, instruction about how they're to think, and then goes back to the instruction of how, of how they are to act in their lives. Today we're just going to study the first two verses um, but before we jump into these two verses, I want to make a few observations from verses 1 through 12. Verses 1 through 12 is, is a unit uh, of Scripture, a subsection of this letter. Uh, we're just going to look at the first two verses today, but I think to take it in context, we need to see what he's saying in all of verses 1 through 12. And I just want to, I just want to um, get you to notice two words, okay? Two key words in verses 1 through 12. The first is the word walk. All right, so if, you, if, if you're a person who likes to underline words in your Bible, um, I do. I've, I've got highlights in my Bible and, and that kind of thing. You might would, uh, find the word walk or your translation might have the word live there in verses 1 through 12. It literally is the word walk, but Paul uses the word walk often to refer to how we live 
our lives. The act of walking is often used in Scripture to refer to how we live on a day-to-day basis, our choices, our character, our conduct. Now, Paul uses this word twice in verse 1 and once in verse 12. Twice in verse 1 and once in verse 12. And so it's interesting that this section is bookended, if you will, with this word walk. Verse 1, two times. Verse 12, one time. Paul is concerned in this section about how they are living their lives. And, of course, his concern is simply an overflow from the concern of the Lord. God is concerned with how they're living their lives. Listen, God is concerned with how I am living my life. God is concerned with how you are living your life. How we live as followers of Christ matters. But then the next question is this. How are we to live? How are we to live? What is God's expectation? What is the standard against which he is measuring our lives to see whether our walk is, just to put it simply, good or bad? That's the second word that I want you to notice in this section. And it's the word holiness or sanctification, depending on your translation. It's repeated three times. You'll see it in verse 3, verse 4, and verse 7. And your, your translation may use... Holiness one time, and may you sanctification another time. But you see that word in verse 3, in verse 4, and verse 7. And then Paul is actually going to use that word again at the end of the letter in chapter 5, verse 23. So just those quick little observations, um, looking at words that Paul repeats, help us to know the main point of verses 1 through 12 is that we walk in holiness. We walk in holiness. To be holy or sanctified, it simply means to be set apart. That's what it means to be sanctified. I know it's not a word that we use a whole lot, but it, it simply means to be set apart. We can ask, what set apart from what? Well, let's look at God for a minute, because God is described as holy or sanctified in, in, in Scripture. Well, God is set apart. What is he set apart from? He's set apart from the wickedness of this world. He's set apart in who he is and what he does. He is, he is only God. He's unlike anyone or anything else, and he's also set apart by his perfectly righteous conduct. And his will is that we would live our lives the exact same way. We would walk in such a way that our character, our choices, our conduct could be described as different or set apart from the world around us. Now, verses 1 through 2 of chapter 4 provide kind of an introduction into this section on walking in holiness. And they teach us that our relationship with Jesus should lead us to continually grow in our obedience to Jesus. As we examine these two verses, I just want to share with you three never statements. Three never statements. Three things that must never take place in our lives as Christians. Three things that should never take place as we seek to live holy lives. The first is this. We must never seek to obey Jesus without a prior relationship with Jesus. We must never seek to obey Jesus without a prior relationship with Jesus. What I mean simply by obey Jesus is is open up the Bible and say, all right, Jesus wants me to do this and not to do this and to do this and not do this. These are things that would honor the Lord. And so I'm going to do those things. We should never try to do that without a prior relationship, without first having a relationship with Jesus. Jesus. The other day, my oldest daughter was sitting at the dinner table and she uh, she picked up her cup and then she started trying to get out of her seat. Now, the booster seat that she was in makes it kind of hard for her to get out of. It takes a lot of work uh, for her to get get out of that thing. She so she picks up her cup. Then she tries to get out. I look up and you know what's happening. The cup is like this. She's trying to get down and it's about to spill out all over the floor. And so I, I grabbed the cup real quick before it, it spilled. And, and, I, and I, I told her, I said, I said, it would probably be better if you first got down 
and then you picked your cup up, and then you could carry it wherever you were going to go. I told her, I said, sometimes the order of things matters. You were doing all the right stuff, you just kind of got it a little bit out of order. And as I said that, uh, it just kind of hit me. You know what, that's, that's so true when it comes to obeying God. Order really does matter. Paul says in verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Now, in the rest of verse 1, Paul's going to instruct them to keep obeying Jesus more and more. But before we get there, we need to make sure we understand the context in which we are to be obeying Jesus. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are asking and urging them in the Lord Jesus. To be in the Lord Jesus means to have a relationship with Jesus. It means you have been united to Jesus by God's grace through your faith in Jesus Christ. It means that your sins have been forgiven and you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's what it means to be in the Lord Jesus. The call to obey here is not for those who are not yet in the Lord Jesus, but for those who already are in the Lord Jesus. The order matters. Salvation must come before obedience. And so, therefore, we don't, we don't ever need to seek to obey Jesus without a prior relationship with Jesus. Paul's authority here to ask and to urge, those are strong words, especially that word urge. We ask and we're urging you. We're asking and you're, we're urging you. His, his authority to do that, um, to, to ask the believers to obey, came from his union to Christ. And the believers' obligation to obey Jesus came from their union to Christ. Obedience to Jesus absolutely matters. And we're going to talk about that. Point, point number two of the sermon is about how we're supposed to obey. But we can't get the cart before the horse. We, we've got to realize that our relationship with Jesus comes first. We get the order wrong. What happens then is we fall prey to the false gospel of a works-based salvation. See, if we think obedience comes first, then we're thinking that our obedience to Jesus is the way to get to Jesus. But nothing could be further from the truth. You see, I'm not a Christian because I obey Jesus. I'm a Christian because I am in Jesus. That's only possible through his death and resurrection and my faith in him. That's the only way that I can be in Jesus. But then, because I am in Jesus, then I can't help but obey Jesus. Perhaps you're wondering then if obeying the commands of Jesus is not the way to have a relationship with Jesus, then how do you have a relationship with Jesus? I mean, so many people in our world, they say, I, I, okay, I want to I go to heaven. I want to I have a relationship with God. I want to be forgiven. And so, so I'm going to have to... I'm gonna have to you know, clean up my act. I'm going to have to start doing the right thing. So many people. I don't mean in the world like like thousands and thousands of miles from here. I mean like in Abbeville, you know, in, in South Carolina. Sometimes even inside the church, there are folks that are confused and think that it's, it's my obedience that gets me to God. And that is not the case. Let me just give you just a few, a few verses just to help us understand um, how, how we come to be in the Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That verse teaches us that there is no one without guilt. We're all sinners before God. And, and then Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, uh, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so 3.23 of Romans says that we're all sinners. 6.23 says that what we deserve because of that sin is death. It's, it's death. And, and, and the solution is Jesus, a free gift given to us. If it's a free gift, guess what that means? You don't earn it. 
if you earned it, then it's not a gift. It's your wage. The only thing we earn is death, is spiritual death forever, separated from God because of our sin. But in Christ, we can have this free gift of Christ. You say, well, mate, I still got to clean, clean myself up a little bit. I mean, certainly, he's just, God's just not going to hand me this free gift of salvation until I do something to prove myself to God. Let me give you one more verse. Chapter uh, 5, verse 8 of Romans. Chapter 5, verse 8 says this, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what that means. Here's that. God loves us in the middle of our falling short of his glory. And in the middle of our falling short of his glory and deserving death, he sent Jesus to die for you and for me. He's, he didn't wait on us to clean ourselves up. He didn't wait on us to obey him before he uh, allowed us to enter into a relationship with him. He's given that to us as a free gift. You say, how do, I, how do I receive that gift? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You receive it by faith. You don't receive it by trying to obey all of the commandments. You receive it by believing and trusting in Jesus. To have faith in Jesus means to rely completely on him and his finished work on the cross to rescue you from your sin. It means to have faith in Jesus means to to trust in what Jesus has done for you to save you rather than trusting in what you try to do for Jesus to save you. And that's how you can have a relationship with Jesus. That's how you can be saved from your sin. And then and only then can you then seek to live in obedience to Jesus. And so I just want to I want to ask, I said earlier that that this this misunderstanding of this works based salvation is not just way out there. Sometimes it's even even in here in our hearts. And so I just want to ask, is there, is there anyone here who needs to stop relying on your own attempt at obeying Jesus to save you and start relying on Jesus and what he did on the cross to save you? It is possible that someone here today has been misunderstood in that and has been trying to trust in their own effort. So I would just plead with you, you need to trust in Jesus and what Jesus has done for you. And not your own obedience. And we've got we've got some more left in this sermon, but that doesn't mean that you just can't stop right now where you're at and just just ask the Lord to save you. Just ask the Lord, say say God, I've I've been trying this on my own for for too long, and and I need I need to trust in what Jesus has done because my efforts are not enough. They never will be enough. But Jesus, what He's done on the cross is enough. And and maybe right now you need to call out to the Lord in your heart and ask Him to forgive you. Not because you have earned it or deserve it, but because he's loved you so much. That even when, Jesus, even, when, even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we must never seek to obey Jesus without first having a relationship with Jesus. But once we do have a relationship with Jesus, once we are in the Lord Jesus, then we must obey Jesus. And we must obey him more and more and more and more. So the second thing that we must never do in our holy walk, remember, three never statements. The second never statement, second thing we must never do in our holy walk is this. We must never stop growing in our obedience to Jesus. We must never stop growing in our obedience to Jesus. We see this in the second part of verse number one. The command here is very clear. Paul writes that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. The, really, the stress of the command is on that, that phrase, that you do so more and more. 
The command is to walk in a manner pleasing to God more and more. It's very, very similar to what he said back in chapter 2, verse 12. Um, here he says, walk in a manner, or, or walk pleasing to God. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, if you recall, he says, walk in a manner worthy of God. Walk in a manner worthy of God, walk in a manner to please God. Either way, however you phrase it, God alone is to be the final authority in their lives. He alone is deserving of their allegiance. I want to look at this, this part of verse 1 um, and just make three, three observations about this call to live pleasing to God. I, I, hope, I hope as a follower of Jesus, one of the, one of the most uh, important things in your life uh, that, that weighs on you in a good sense, not that you're burdened by it, but it's on your mind is each day is how can I live to please God today? I hope, I hope that's, that you wake up in the morning. I hope you wake up and say, the most important thing in my life today is that I live please, a life pleasing to God. Let me just make three observations here. Um, and, uh, and shared these with you. One, I just want you to notice that Paul's not adding to the original gospel that he preached to them. Paul's not adding to what he originally preached. He didn't go to them and say, all right, you need to believe in Jesus. And now um, a few months or a year later is writing to them, oh, yeah, by the way, you also need to obey Jesus with your life. He, that's, not, that's not how he preached the gospel. He told them this from the beginning. He says, as you receive from us, and then jumping ahead to verse 2, he says, you know what instructions we gave you. This is past tense. When Paul preached the gospel to, to them, he declared to them the whole gospel, not just a partial gospel. He told them how to be saved and then how to live once they were saved. But he told them all of that up front. He explained to them that faith in Jesus was the only way to salvation and that those who believed in Jesus for salvation would then live a transformed life because that's what happens when God saves you. I mean, just a lot, many applications we can make. Let me just make one application of, of, that, of that truth that we see there, of how Paul uh, preached that to them from the very beginning. We need to make sure we follow Paul's example in our evangelism. What I mean by evangelism is when we share the gospel with someone who's lost. We need to follow this example. We don't just want to tell people they need to trust in Jesus as their Savior. We also need to tell them at the same time that they need to submit to Jesus as their Lord. If we just say, oh, just pray to Jesus and he'll save you, and, and we, don't, we don't tell them, look, salvation means you are surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's not your Savior unless he's also your Lord. We've got to, we've got to tell people that up front when we share the gospel with them. We don't want to lead someone to trust in Jesus for salvation until we've helped them understand that believing in Jesus is the decision to follow him for the rest of their lives. It's so important. Parents with children, when you're sharing the gospel, we don't just want to say, well, just believe in Jesus and he'll save you. If we haven't also said, listen, he also said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself daily and follow me. That's not a life of ease. That's a life that's difficult. Taking up your cross and following Jesus. And so we want to make sure we give the, the whole gospel that we trust in Jesus, not our obedience that saves us. But once we have trusted in Jesus, we will then submit our lives and surrender our lives to his lordship and follow him every day for the rest of our lives. The second observation I want you to see there um, in that second half of verse, uh, of verse 1 is this, that a life of walking in obedience to God is not optional for believers, for those who are in the Lord Jesus. Paul uses the word ought here. Um, maybe your translation uses that, maybe a, a different word. Um, he says how you ought to walk and to please God. But I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say how you could <laughs> walk and please God. 
Well, you could live this way if you want to, but it's, it's optional. Like, if you, if you want to be a really good Christian, then you'll live this way. But if you just want to, you know, be average, you know, Christian, then you don't have to live this way. No, there's no could. There's you, you ought to walk. It's a strong word here. It's a command. It's not optional. But obeying Jesus is not optional for followers of Jesus. While we are saved through faith alone, we are not saved through faith that is alone. Our good works don't save us, but saving faith will always be accompanied by a life of good works done for the glory of the one who provided that free gift of salvation. I love, I love how the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, words this and phrases this in uh, his letter to Titus. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 8, because you get this order here. You get free gift of salvation we don't earn, and yet at the same time it's followed up with a life full of good works. Uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, pause right there. You've got mercy, you've got grace, you've got the work of the Holy Spirit washing us. We're not saved by our works, okay? So, so that's the first step, a relationship with Jesus that's not based on our obedience, it's based on God's grace towards us. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Obedience to Jesus' commands does not save a person, but there is no such thing. There is no such thing as someone who has been saved who is not striving to live their lives in obedience to Jesus. Not saying that a Christian is perfect in all their ways, but there's no such thing as someone who has been saved by Jesus and doesn't care how they live their lives. Has, is, is not, not, not at all concerned with walking in holiness. It's impossible to be saved by Jesus without your life being changed to reflect the holiness of Jesus. Obedience to Jesus is not optional. One, one last thing at the end of verse 1 that we've got to notice, and this is really the emphasis here in this verse and in this passage, and that's simply that we're to obey Jesus more and more. We're to obey Jesus more and more. Just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Paul's not saying that they're failing. He's not chastising them and saying, you're not living in obedience to Jesus. We've already seen in chapters 1 through 3 that he's thankful for how they are walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus. I mean, even in this verse, he says, you ought to walk in obedience just as you are doing. Literally, that's the same word, the word walking, or if your translation uses the word living. He says, he says you ought to walk in obedience just as you're walking. You ought to live in obedience just as you're living. Well, then I go, well, Paul, if they're already walking in holiness and sanctification and obedience, why are you telling them to walk in sanctification and holiness and obedience? If they're already doing that, why are you telling them to do that? Well, the reason lies in an essential truth of the Christian life. When God saves us, he begins a work in us. He begins a work in us. That work is to make us holy and to sanctify us. And this work lasts until our time on earth is done. Legally, before God is our judge, we are declared righteous in his sight the moment we place our faith in Jesus for salvation. The moment you trusted in Jesus for salvation, God from that moment on looks at you 
And when he sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And so you stand before God a minute after you trust in Jesus for salvation or 70 years after you trust in Jesus for salvation. He'll see the same thing. Someone who has been washed clean by the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. And at the same time, in our everyday lives, we don't always look like we've been forgiven of all of our sins. We don't always look like someone who is a child of God. And so he begins a good work in us that moment to make the way that we live day in and day out match up with who we already are in Christ, righteous in his sight. So we're putting off sin and we're putting on holiness and he's doing that work in us. He's making our walk look more and more like the destination to which we are headed. Our destination is a holy destination, the presence of God. And so God is removing our sin and replacing it with holiness. And we are to cooperate with him by continually growing in our obedience to his commands. Because God's process of sanctifying us doesn't end until heaven. Our growth in obedience shouldn't end until then either. This means that wherever you're at in your walk with Jesus, wherever you're at in obeying him, there's still room for growth. There's still room for improvement. If you've ever taken a child to the doctor for a checkup, and you know the importance of growth as it relates to the health of the child. Every time we take one of our our children to the doctor uh, for just one of their routine uh, checkups, uh, that doctor always you know, um, measures their height, uh, gets their weight. But then they don't just look at that. They compare it to where they were the last time. They chart it and they look. And that what they're looking for is to make sure that that child is growing. A sure sign that something's wrong with my child's health would be that if she's if she stopped gaining weight or stopped growing taller, growth is a sign of health. What, what if my child said, Daddy, I think I've grown enough. Thirty five pounds and three foot five inches is about all the growth that I think I've got in me. I hope you're satisfied because I'm all done growing. I've had all the food I think I need. I'm just going to stop eating because I really don't think that I need to grow anymore. Now, what am I going to say if she says that? I'm going to say, no, darling, you're not finished growing. You've got a long way to go. And here's your supper. (laughs) Eat up. Eat up. This is what Paul's telling the Thessalonians. He's saying you're doing well, church, but you've got a long way to go. Don't stop growing in your obedience. Don't stop feasting on God's word. Keep putting off sin. Keep putting on holiness. Keep growing. Years later, Paul would write the following words to the church at Philippi. He would say, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, even towards the end of Paul's life. He wrote the letter to the Philippians, even towards the end of his life, he was still striving to grow in obedience to Jesus. One of my favorite things as a pastor is to hear um, an, an older, older saint in the Lord uh, say, I'm just learning. I'm just growing so much. I'm just learning so much from God's word and God's just teaching me so much. I love to hear somebody who I know has been walking with the Lord for longer than I've been alive say, I'm still growing. I still love, love what I'm learning. And, and God is teaching me in my walk with the Lord. That is the testimony of a genuine follower of Jesus, always growing. And that just encouraged me as a pastor. It encouraged me as a Christian. Because on my deathbed, whether that's tomorrow or 70 years from now, I want to be growing. 
I want to be growing in my obedience to Jesus. My body may be failing. It may be shutting down. But I want my soul to be growing in the Lord. So we must never seek to obey Jesus without a prior relationship with Jesus. We must never seek to stop, or we must never stop growing in our obedience to Jesus. Let me give you that last never statement. I said three never statements. Let me give you that last never statement. We must never claim ignorance as an excuse for disobedience. We must never claim ignorance as an excuse for disobedience. We see this in verse 2. What what do I mean by claim ignorance? To claim ignorance means to say, well, it's not my fault that I didn't obey. I didn't know I was supposed to do this or not do that. That's what it means to claim ignorance. It's true. Sometimes in life there are things that, as we're just learning and maturing and growing, especially in the earlier years of our lives, we don't know. We sometimes act out of ignorance, and it's just part of learning and, and maturing. But it's one thing to claim ignorance when you don't have any instructions. It's an entirely different matter to claim ignorance when you do have the instructions. Let me give you an example of something that would never, ever happen. But if it ever did, it would be a great example of what we're talking about here. Let's say that a couple buys something for their home. Maybe it's a bookcase or a desk, or maybe it's something for some kids, like like a swing set or or some kind of toy. Whatever they buy for their home, um, it's got that, that... um, dreaded label on it that says assembly required, you know, assembly required. Now, the husband works tirelessly to put it together. And when he finishes, he says something like he, he walks in. He says, he says, this is a piece of junk. I don't know who manufactured this thing, but the pieces don't fit together. And it came with the wrong size bolts. I don't know how this is supposed to work. To which his wife replies, honey, did you read the instructions? Now, I'm not going to actually say what the rest of their conversation sounds like because, well, we really don't want to speak of such unpleasant things in our worship service today. But I will say this, the conversation that follows has a great deal to do with whether or not there actually were instructions that came with the package. If there are no instructions, then the husband is justified in claiming ignorance. He can say, I really don't know what to do with all these pieces. There's there's no instructions. But if there are instructions, and if he has not read them, then He's not justified in claiming ignorance. He can't say, I don't know what to do with these pieces. But of course, that's a completely hypothetical example. Nothing like that ever actually happens in real life. Right? Now, we might laugh at a silly hypothetical example or situation like that that never really happens. But, but when it comes to obeying Jesus as followers of Jesus, claiming ignorance is not allowed. Nor is it a laughable matter. Paul writes in verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Just in case there's someone in the church in Thessalonica who is tempted to disobey the commands of Jesus and then say, Well, I didn't know. I didn't didn't know what I was supposed to do. Paul says, Oh, yes, you did know. You did know. Unless, of course, you chose not to listen or not to pay attention to them. Church, hear this loud and clear. We must never come to God saying, I didn't know how to obey you in this situation. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to lie. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to lust. I didn't know I was, uh, that I was supposed to love my enemies. I didn't know I was supposed to examine my own heart before I pointed out the sin in someone else's life. I didn't know my role as a husband means to sacrifice my wants and desires for the good of my wife. I didn't know my role as a wife was to submit with joy to the leadership of my, of my husband. I didn't know my role as a parent was to be the primary disciple maker in the lives of my children. I didn't know that I was supposed to work to the spread towards the spread of the gospel to the nations. God, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to seek revenge against those who wronged me. 
uh, uh, Lord, I didn't know that there was to be no limit into how many times I would forgive someone who had wronged me. I didn't know that the gathering of the church was required of Christians. God, I didn't know that generosity was expected of those who are in the Lord Jesus. And the list could go on. The Thessalonians couldn't claim ignorance and neither can we because we have the instructions of Jesus. It's called the Bible. It's called the Bible. And this means that any claim of ignorance when it comes to obeying Jesus is really a cover-up for failing to read and study and learn and apply the scriptures and instructions that Jesus has given to us. If we say, I didn't know, it's our fault for not knowing because God has given us everything we need. And by the way, the instructions of Jesus are not suggested ways of living our lives. They are commands. The word instructions there in, in verse 2 is, is a word that was referred to a military command that was passed down the chain of command. And ask anyone who served in the military, the instructions of a superior officer are not suggestions. They are commands. Christians, our superior officer has graciously provided us with all we need for life and godliness. Paul wrote to Timothy, for all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Want to know how to live a holy life? All scripture, breathed out by God, is useful for that. So don't ever say, Jesus, I didn't grow in obedience because I didn't know you wanted me to do that. We must never claim ignorance as an excuse for disobedience. In the coming weeks, we're going to be learning uh, what God's Word says about some specific areas in our lives and how we're going to be walking in holiness. But I think this introduction to those specific commands should, should, um, should help protect us from arrogance and laziness. You see, it would be tempting for some of the Thessalonians to read chapters 4 and 5, what we're going to get into in the next few weeks, and, and be tempted to say, oh, I'm, I'm already doing those things. I'm doing pretty good in those areas of my life. It's tempting to say that instead of saying, yeah, I'm obeying, but I still need to examine my life against God's word because I know there's still room for growth in my obedience. We just have to assume that there is room for growth. No matter how good you're doing in a particular area of your life, you can just assume that there's room for growth. I pray that we're never arrogant or lazy when it comes to walking in holiness. I pray that each one of us will be constantly pursuing greater obedience to Jesus. May our prayer, church, May our prayer be this, God, thank you that I'm not who I once was, and by your grace, I pray that I will not stay how I am now. Thank you for the growth that I have experienced, but help me to keep growing in obedience to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or maybe, maybe you're, that's where you're at. Maybe you're here today, you have a relationship with Jesus, you say, I want to keep growing, I want to keep growing. What, what can I do just to make sure that I keep growing? Can I just give you three words? Bible, prayer, church. <laughs> Bible, prayer, church. So one more time. Bible, prayer, church. How do you grow in your obedience to Jesus? Take the three, thing, three basic, most fundamental things God has given us for our growth in the Christian life. Bible, prayer, and church. You must prioritize reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on God's Word with the goal of applying it to your life. You must spend meaningful time in prayer and you must be deeply committed to the local church, both to learning with other believers as the word of God is taught and 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 then um, serving and growing with other believers as you serve together and as you engage in genuine fellowship, just like a flower will never grow, never, ever grow apart from light, air, water and those nutrients that it needs. We will never be able to grow in our obedience to Jesus without being continually filled with God's word pouring our hearts out in prayer and surrounding ourselves with a community of believers 
called the church. Those are the essential ingredients to Christian growth. The Holy Spirit takes those things and uses them to increase our obedience. Friends, the finish line is heaven. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm ready. I, I mean, I can't wait. I can't wait to cross that finish line. I'm just gonna, I, I can't imagine what that day is going to be like. But until that day, we keep growing in our obedience. Not in order to make it to heaven, but in order to express our deep love for the one who is already preparing a place for us there by his love displayed on the cross. Let's not let up before the finish line. Let's not let up before the finish line. Trust in Christ alone for salvation. And then live for Christ alone every moment of every day for the rest of your lives. Let's pray. Father, would you help us in this moment to consider our own lives and evaluate our lives in light of your word. Lord, would you help each of us right now to think about an area of our life where there needs to be some growth in our obedience to you? Father, would you help us expose that in our lives and then help us to confess our failure Help us to rest in the promise of salvation that you have given to us. And Lord, may that grace motivate us to live and walk in holiness and in obedience to you, Lord Jesus, all the days of our lives. Lord, you are worthy of our obedience because you saved us before we ever did anything pleasing to you. So may the good news of the gospel, may the grace that you have shown us lead us into greater and greater and greater obedience all the days of our lives until that day when we stand before you without any sin Until that day when we walk before you in perfect holiness for all of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.